You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. Fantastic to be here. I do also want to encourage you to uh, take every opportunity inviting people along to the carols. Um, this week, I was um, inviting my neighbours round. We have our neighbours round at Christmas. We invite them round on next Saturday. I think getting round for mild wine and mince pies. Then I'll invite them all to the carols. And I was going door to door down the street and literally just handing them out. Uh, the invitations. And one of my neighbours said, oh, I've already got one of your invites. I found it at the town hall. I picked it up and I thought, oh, I'd love to come. So you never know how God is going to use it and invite some people. And of course, we want to plug the alpha on that. It's just a great opportunity to chat to people. If you've got a Bible, I'd love it. You could turn to Nehemiah 11. We're doing a series, Nehemiah, A Tale of Two Cities. But we're going to do two things at once now, because I know you're a clever bunch. I'm going to do a little quiz. And I don't want people just sat there. I'm going to make, uh, get a bit of involvement. So if you think of the answer, then you need to stand. So I've got question one, which comes up here. These are all to do with London, because we like to feel we're Londoners. Question number one. No, no, no. Forget it. Okay, don't worry about it. We'll just go straight into the Bible. Let's read Nehemiah 11. Sorry about that. Nikki is going to read to us. Great, yeah, I'm reading from Nehemiah 11, verse 1 to 19, the new residents of Jerusalem. Now the leaders of the people settled in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of every ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while the remaining nine were to stay in their own towns. The people commended all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. These are the provincial leaders who settled in Jerusalem. Now some Israelites, priests, Levites, temple servants, and descendants of Solomon's servants lived in the towns of Judah, each on his own property in the various towns, while other people from both Judah and Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. From the descendants of Judah, Athaiah, son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, the son of Shephatiah, the son of Mahalalel, a descendant of Perez, and Messiah, the son of Barak, the son of Colhezer, the son of Haziah, the son of Adiah, the son of Joyarib, the son of Zechariah, a descendant of Shelah. The descendants of Perez who lived in Jerusalem totaled 468 able men. From the descendants of Benjamin, Salu, son of Meshulam, the son of Joed, the son of Padiah, the son of Kaliah, the son of Masiah, the son of Ithel, the son of Josiah, and the followers Gabai and Salai, 928 men. Joel, son of Zikri, was a chief officer, and Judah, son of Hasanua, was over the second district of the city. From the priests, Jediah, the son of Joyarib, Jakin, Sariah, son of Hilkiah, the son of Meshulam, the son of Zadok, the son of Marioth, the son of Ahitab, supervisor in the house of God, and their associates who carried on the work for the temple, 822 men. Adiah, son of jo- Jeroam, the son of Pelaliah, the son of Amzai, the son of Zechariah, the son of Pashur, the son of Malkijah, and his associates who were heads of the families, 242 men. Amashai, son of Azarel, 
the son of Arzai, the son of Meshillamuth, the son of Immer, and his associates, who were able men, 128. The chief officer was Zabdiel, son of Hagadolam. From the Levites, Shemaiah, son of Hashab, the son of Azricam, the son of Heshabiah, the son of Buni, Shabbathai, and Josabad, two of the heads of the Levites who had charge of the outside work of the house of God. Mataniah, son of Micah, the son of Zabdi, the son of Asaph, the director who led in thanksgiving and prayer. Bakbukiah, second among his associates, and Abda, son of Shamua, the son of Galal, the son of Jejuthun, the Levites in the holy city, totaled 284. Like the no. Oh, that's up to verse 19. Yep. Great, thank you very much. <laughs> Huge round of applause. I don't know why those words are in the Bible myself, but we're going to pick out some amazing words this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do want to commit this time to you. Lord, we look at a list of names like that, Lord, and we just think, God, what will you say to us? What will you say to us? God, we've loved it this morning, this word coming, that you will speak to each one of us. Father, we want to hear from you now. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've been looking at this book of uh, Nehemiah. We've been, if you've not been here, we've done for seven weeks, just give you a very quick catch-up. Nehemiah was basically the cup-bearer in captivity in Susa which is modern-day Iran. He was serving the king there. He learns that the walls of Jerusalem, the capital of his home country, about 800 miles away, are in disrepair. And so he takes some radical action. He, he uh, gathers a, a bunch of folk. He restores the wall. He reads the law. They repent of their sin. They renew the covenant. And then we hit at chapter 11, which is where we've got up to now. And I would like you to take two words away. Just two words from this morning. Right? The first word is this, city. Could everyone just say, city? city. Chapter 11 is all about the city. Yeah, now, you know, there's a whole list of words there. But actually, I would say, if, if we had to think about it, what they're really talking about is Jerusalem. Jerusalem is mentioned nine times in the chapter. The city is, it, it talked about, you see, basically, when they attacked the place, Jerusalem would have been attacked first because it was the major city. And so if the city wasn't populated, the place was going to be in trouble. And so Nehemiah thought, look, we've rebuilt the walls, but actually if we're going to really see something happen, we need to see some people in the city. He decides to address this. This is, many would say, the, the theme of the book. Well, I love the fact that we live in the city of London. I love the fact that, you know, here we are, we could say, and it depends what numbers you try and make up, I'm just going to say 10 million people that live in this place here, and many more come and work. Now, the city, and I think this is really relevant to us and where we live, is a massive theme right throughout the Bible. And so what we've tried to say, the whole thing of Nehemiah, is let's not just jump in and think, oh, what does it mean to rebuild the walls? Oh, does that mean I've got to take up bricklaying as an evening class? Now, actually, what we're saying is, what's this whole story? Well, you see, the city, and, and thinking about us in London, the city is a place, biblically, of shelter for the weak and those that were different. 
You see, if you understood something of the city in the Old Testament, you would have understood that actually it was a place where if you were in trouble, you could flee to the city. In fact, if you were an, an, exo- if you were an immigrant, you could go to the city to try and get some security and get a place to work. In fact, we know that when they took on the promised land, they had these cities of refuge. It's almost like flee to the city and there you should be safe. So actually, God's idea of the city is very much that we want to be somewhere that is a place where people can settle and seek a better existence. We've called this the tale of two cities because the danger is that I think we're not necessarily in that place. I think the challenge has become that as people, we've made a city which is a refuge from God rather than for God. And often those with a deviant lifestyle can hide in the city. And actually the city can breed anger and hostility rather than safety and community. I don't think this is God's way. What do I think about the city? I think biblically the city was a place where cultural and human development could take place. It's almost like God says, look, if I get loads of people together in a city, what happens is that they meet people that are different to them. They get inspired by people. Often the arts, creativity, media, all these kind of things would be happening in the city. In fact, in Psalm 48, it says the city is meant to be the joy of the whole earth. Now, I know you could say this is, again, it's the merging of the pictures because that is the church. But I think the city was a place that is to bless the earth. However, there's also a second city that we can see in the Bible that so often when people have gathered together, and you can read this in Genesis 11, rather than build a city for the glory of God, they've built it for their own name and their own reputation. Unfortunately, rather than encouraging creativity, the danger with cities is that they can lead to burnout and fatigue. It can expose the worst of us. The city, I would say, biblically was meant to be a place where God dwelt in the middle. You see, just going through the history of Jerusalem, we know that Ezra had gone back and rebuilt the temple. Nehemiah goes back and rebuilds the walls. Actually, the whole city was focused around that. I would say that historically, that would be true in this country. Many towns or places, actually, where did people gather? It was either the pub or the church. It's almost like right at the center, there was this sort of sense of how do we search? How do we find out? How do we connect? I had the privilege, God, was it last year, the year before? I can't remember. I went to Rome, went around the Vatican. I don't know if you're aware. I had never realized this. I mean, it's a huge shaper of that city. Historically, it was built. I discovered that there's not allowed to be any building in Rome higher than the Vatican. I never realized that. It's why they don't have huge, great tower blocks. Because actually, the church was meant to be the high point of the city. And you think, well, that's almost, there's an understanding of this. But actually, today, if you think about London and the city here, what is the high point? I guess the high point tends to be Banks, skyscrapers, the gods of money or power or influence. You see, within a city, and this would have been true of the story there, there's loads of different groups. This is a picture. I know this was of the Olympic parade, but I just thought often when you think about the city, you think of crowds and crowds of people. Who tends to live in the city? Well, and I'm sure I'm addressing many of them this morning. The elite choose to live in cities. The powerful, the influential, the artists, the business, the political, the media, they are the culture shapers of tomorrow. 
They're often those that dwell in the city. The masses tend to come and gather in a city. So often they say, don't they, that immigrants would move to a city and then filter out into the whole of society. It's probably why in the last elections, UKIP didn't get a great response in London because actually people think, well, this is where everybody comes and lives. You know, there's not all this, and it may be in the countryside where other people have got those kind of opinions. The poor often live in the city. Now, I know that I've been thinking about London, but actually if you think about some of the cities of the world, I went to Mumbai. I think it's half of the people that live in the city there are living in shanty towns. It's a phenomenal gathering of the poor. Cities are often a gathering place for the younger generation. Those that are vibrant, happening, again, I'm looking out and seeing all those folk here this morning, and those with beards. You know what I'm saying? There's this, 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 no, come on. Actually, people get attracted to the city, seeing things happen. So if I think about the people that are involved in the city, I think surely that's where the church should be. You see what I'm saying? I think surely the church is meant to be in the city. In fact, if you read through Acts and the life of Paul, you will understand that when he went on his missionary journeys, he didn't go you know, for the small places, he went for the cities. I know here we've got the, the whole challenge of him, and I don't think this was Paul, but it was just basically he went to where the people were. He was thinking, actually, who could I address? They reckon that Christianity spread so quickly in the New Testament because Paul went to the city and because the city had the culture shapers in. In fact, I was reading this week, pagan means country dweller. Because actually, in the, by the 300, they reckon half of the Roman Empire had been converted because actually they went into the cities. So it was those that weren't in the cities that didn't believe. Well, how does this impact us today? The reality is that the world is moving to cities. In 1800, I know there is nobody here old enough to remember this, so you'll have to trust me. In 1800, only 3% of the world's population lived in a city. Only 3% in 1800. In 1900, there were only 12 cities in the world with a population of 1 million. In 1950, there were only considered two large world cities, New York and London. But today, so that's within, let's count it, 64 years, there are now 456 cities in the world with a population of more than 1 million. The largest city in the world, Tokyo, has got 37 million. And they reckon half of the world's population now live in a city. So it's funny, because so many of us could dream of moving to the country. I mean, how many of you have seen that television program, you know, Escape to the Country? You know, there's this whole thing, isn't it? We tend to think, oh, Pete, I just want to get out of the city. If I could get to the countryside, we tend to think it's healthier, cleaner, quieter. Well, I was reading an article this week, I think it was The Guardian, that sounds quite intelligent. So I'll, I'll pretend it was The Guardian, that's saying actually it's much more dangerous to live in the country than in the city. More road accidents happen apparently there, but I, I, I know that I will be on thin ground if I start talking about that. What I want to say is, what does this really address us? How does this make an impact? See, Nehemiah understood the importance of the city. Biblically, cities are important. We think culturally it's important. How does it impact us? Well, I think it impacts every one of you, because I think if you choose to live in Ealing, you've got to recognize that life is very busy. 
Living in a city can feel like stressful. Even if you've got nothing to do, you can feel like things are going on because you just live in a city. But my parents have lived in the countryside, lived there their, their whole lives. They don't understand why I enjoy living in a place where I could buy tomatoes at four o'clock in the morning. I said to them, I don't know why I just find it comforting that at the end of the road, there's a shop that's open 24 hours. I said, if I need to buy milk, I can buy it at five in the morning. They said to me, have you ever? I said, I haven't, but I like knowing that I can. Yeah, there's something, isn't there, about the, oh, it's just great that any time something's always happening, isn't it? Sometimes, you know, you come home on the bus at like half 11 or midnight and you think, man, if everyone just kicked out of work, I mean, I'm still standing on the bus at midnight. Now, I feel there's a real joy in that, but I realize there's real stress in that as well. I realize that it can be tiring. I realize that the choice to live in a city means this. You probably live in a smaller house than if you moved out to the countryside. I have a brother who lives up north, and um, you know, he's got a massive it. We're going up there for Christmas. I can't wait. You know what I'm saying? I think his hallway is probably bigger than my entire house. You know what I'm saying? You go in there, the stairs goes up. It's all like this. You think, wow. Reality is, for many people, if you make a decision to live in the city, it'll be a smaller space. I don't know if you've seen these adverts. I saw one house advertised that, again, Obviously, I've been researching it this week. It literally was as wide as a bike. I don't know if you've seen that one. And you think, as wide as a bike, and they go in there, and it's one room up, one room down. Well, actually, that's quite large now, isn't it? Because I saw a flat advertised recently. I don't know if you saw this one. There was a sink, there was a bed, there was a toilet, there was a door. I mean, the beautiful thing is you don't have to pay for a cleaner. Looking on the bright side, you know what I'm saying? The beautiful thing is you can have breakfast in bed every day. I appreciate that. The beautiful thing is you shouldn't be able to miss the toilet, but we won't go there. (laughs) The harsh reality is there's often a lack of space. I recognize that there's a challenge because transport takes time. You know what I'm saying? You can sit there and then the train comes along and it's full anyway. Or there's a problem. I recognize that it's expensive. It really is. It feels like, oh, it costs loads of money. I recognize there's a perception that there's more violence and crime. I know for myself, it's the first house. You say, how many houses have you lived in? I think I counted up eight. It's the first house I've ever lived in that I don't need a lawnmower. You think, golly, you just have no garden. Life is different if you live in a city. So why would we do it? Why do people do it? See, I think I would encourage you, think differently. Because historically, the challenge has been for Christians, we want to get out of the city. The challenge is we think, oh, I'd rather go and live somewhere green or peaceful or quiet. But actually, I think if we understand something of the Bible, we understand that actually God has a massive heart for the city. Now, some of you will be sat there going, Pete, I've read the Bible and I know it starts in a garden. And I said, yeah, but you've only started. You know it finishes in a city. It only started in the garden because that's where the people were when God created them. I honestly think there's this picture of, actually, where's our commitment to the city? Now, in terms of the gospel, cities can be quite challenging. I think that if we're bringing the gospel to a city, we need to approach it with humility. We've much to learn. I think we can approach it with confidence. We've much to give. But I think we need to approach it with courage. We've nothing to fear. 
Tim Keller, some of you would have heard of him. He's a, a preacher and an author. He leads a church in New York. He says this, one of the very best ways to reach the far parts of the world is to reach your own city. You see, Jesus gave the commission, didn't he, to the disciples, go to the ends of the earth. And he would say, well, look, the best way to go to the ends of the earth is to reach the city. You see, I believe that if we understand something of what Nehemiah was doing here, it was almost like, come on, we've got to populate the city. This is key. This is central. I believe this is the word for us today. Take the city. Ron Greenway, you've probably never heard of him. He's a missionary theologian. I was reading him this week. He says, through worldwide migration to the city, God may be setting the stage for Christian missions' greatest and perhaps final hour. So he was saying this whole thing of actually, as I was quoting, stats where people are moving and choosing to live in the city. Another guy, this is an urban missionary called Bill Crispin, says this, the country is where there are more plants than people. The city is where there are more people than plants. And since God loves people more than plants, he loves the city more than the country. I thought that was a great one. I will stick that on Facebook this week. Tim Keller, I guess, brings in this challenge. probably takes it on a slightly deeper one than thinking about plants and people. He says this, if Christians want to reach the unreached, we must go to the cities. To reach the rising generations, we must go to the cities. To have any impact for Christ on the creation of culture, we must go to the cities. To serve the poor, we must go to the city. See, I think the book of Nehemiah inspires me because what it says is, guys, you're in the right place. You're in the right place doing the right thing. You know, it's almost like, well done. Uh, you know, uh, I know that Yvonne, godly woman, says Jesus is coming around, patting people on the back, is almost touching everyone. I got that from the word. I, I feel that if we were reading Nehemiah, we'd have Nehemiah going, great, great to see you in the city. Great to see you in the city. Great to have you in the city. You know, this is, hey, come on, give me high five. Oh, no, we don't touch in the city. We don't look at one another. But we are in church, so we can. But there's almost this challenge. What a privilege. Jeremiah said, didn't he, the prophet in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 29, verse 7, Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. We are not meant to be a church that's hidden away. We're meant to be here for the blessing of the city. Okay, this, is, and this could get me into a little bit of trouble. I should be very quick on it. I think that the rise of secularism, has increased individuality within our society, which means we no longer care for others. I think the trouble is that people look to religion, and religion protects tribes, whereas if you follow Christianity, you want to see the blessing of all. Because under Christianity, we believe God made all. He's the creator of all. So therefore, we want to be involved in serving people in fleeing Syria or that are struggling with Ebola and not say, it's got nothing to do with me. And it affects our whole world view if we understand that he's the God who created everything. And therefore, we're here to make an impact. We're not here just to be nice Christians that hide away and huddle and have, wow, great, Margaret, great singing. Oh, that was nice on a Sunday morning. No, we're here to make an impact upon the city. That's what Nehemiah would say. Okay, first word, city. Second word that I would take out of the whole of chapter 11, 
And trust me, it's not a name because I can't pronounce any of them. Submission. Why don't you all say submission? You see, for these people, it was a huge challenge. I don't know if you picked up in those first couple of verses before Nikki really got going on all those words. A tenth of the people were to leave the countryside and to repopulate the city. Now, we think that cities used to do this. I was reading about Greek and Hellenistic thought pattern. The idea was, how do you get a city up and going? You'd literally ask people to go and move. And so Nehemiah was basically saying, come on, I want one out of ten. You know, it's almost like the concept of a tithe. It wasn't just your cash thereafter. It was your life. I want you to get up. I want you to... This was a massive thing for those people. So how did they decide? Well, partly they, they cast lots. It's funny, we might think of rolling dice today. And we can think, oh golly, that doesn't seem very spiritual, does it? <laughs> so it's like, have I got to go? Yeah. You, go. But the thing was, you see, for them, the casting of lots, or we would call the rolling of dice, meant that they believed God was in charge of everything. And because they believed that, they were then prepared to go. So it wasn't, oh, is the, is the, lot, is the car, is it going to suddenly be me? It wasn't, oh, I've pulled the short straw. Actually, they, they cast these lots, something they were small stones, actually, something they were even arrowheads or little bits of wood. And there's almost this casting of a lot. And, oh, the lots come to me. Oh, no, I knew it. I knew he'd make my life miss. No, it's almost like that's what God wants me to do. I'll do it. So there was a, a sense in the people of submission to God. Some talk about the volunteers, and in fact, if you read the first couple of verses, you think, did they volunteer and then take a tithe? Was it the volunteer that were beginning of the tithe? Were the volunteers those that topped up the tithe? Why were they congratulating? Why? Because I think what they understood is there was something in the people of, of submitting to God. There was a huge cost to these people to move house. I mean, it wasn't an easy thing if you were in those days to suddenly up and leave the countryside and go and move into the city. I mean, basically, these people, you know, they, they, they were part of an agricultural community. They were going to go and live in the city. If you were part of the people of God, you believed the land was your inheritance from God. And it's almost like leave the land and go to the city. I mean, I, I, we, we, we're very much like that now. My son's gone off to university. He's gone somewhere else. People just moved. In those days, it's almost like whole communities would have stayed together forever. You'd have known your friends and your neighbors forever. One of the neighbours that's coming around next Saturday, a guy called Tom, Tom and Joan, lives opposite me. He's lived in the house for 61 years. I think no one else on the streets lives like that. Whenever I go and see him, he, out comes a story. Pete, you know that house there, number 35? Yeah, that one got blown up in the blitz. That's why it's different. Away he goes. That He knows the street. Well, these people would have been like that. You know what I'm saying? That they'd have lived in an area, a patch. When they came back, I know some of them have been on exile, they'd have gone back to the same patch. This is, where we're, this is what God has given us. It's not what I've got on education here or I've moved to another. You know, there was this sense of, I would do whatever for God. I would leave family, neighbors, friends. I'll embrace a new lifestyle. If we're really honest, some of us in this room have done that for other reasons. So I, and now you're going to think, oh golly, yeah, I grew up in the country. I had no choice where I was born. Forgive me, I'm never leaving the city again. But I left the countryside to go to university. 
So I thought, well, I'm quite happy to make a move because actually it might do my, my education some good. And then actually I had a job change. So I left one part and went and lived somewhere else. And you think, well, I'm quite happy to move for a career. But what about for God? You see, these people here, they submitted totally for God. And I think this is the huge challenge of what it really means to be a Christian. You see, it doesn't just mean, oh, well, actually, uh, God, I'll keep you on the edge. No, actually, it means right at the center, I will submit everything I am to you. I know these people sat here this morning. Sam, who played the keys, only lives in Ealing because he thought, God, I want to go and see a church planted. Adam, the only reason he's living here, because they thought, I actually want to come out here. There's others I could go around and say, wow, people said, I literally, I will up and move. Jesus said in Luke 9, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross daily, and follow me. I would say part of becoming a Christian is not that we give him two hours on a Sunday morning. It's not that we just chunk some change into a pot. Part of a being a Christian is we say, I surrender all. Everything I am, I give to you. Whoa, that, that will impact where we choose to live. That will impact who our neighbors are going to be, how we spend our time. Jesus didn't just talk it, we know he did it. In Philippians 2, Paul is writing to the church. He says, your relationships with one another must have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. This is what I, I mean, this is one of the things I find so attractive about Christianity, that actually Jesus didn't say, hey, you've got to obey me and go and do this. Jesus Jesus modeled it. He demonstrated it. Those of us who know, when he on the Last Supper, I mean, this is Jesus, his last meal he's about to have with his disciples. I mean, if that was you and I, if I, if I was about to have the last meal with the disciples, what might I do? I'd be thinking, make sure it's the food I enjoy eating. Um, come on, guys, this is my last one. You guys are going to eat tomorrow. He knew he was going to the cross. I might have thought, oh, pamper me. Go on then, just one more for the road. I mean, are we allowed to admit that kind of thing? But that's how I might have approached the last meal. I might have just, oh, golly, I'm not washing up today. No way. I haven't got long left. And you think I'm going to spend my hands in the sink? Forget it. Not Jesus. So what does Jesus do? The last meal with the disciples. He gets up, it says, he takes on the very image of a servant and washes their feet. Literally, would have gone along and said, come on, you know, your feet are dirty. I'll wash your feet. Jesus submitted all for us. Jesus didn't come and just say, I'm just going to lord it over them. He said, I'm going to serve them. And I think surely that's why we want to sur surrender all to him. So often, uh, I was raised in a Baptist church. We used to sing a chorus, I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Saviour, I surrender all. Now that's a huge challenge, but I think that's, that's part of the beauty of this story. Part of the beauty is actually saying, I will give it all up for you. So I want to say then, two words. First word is, brilliant. Second word is, 
Oh, fantastic. I love it. So if we're going to make the city and we're going to be submitted, here's a practical thing that you can get involved. Because I know you're sitting there saying, Pete, good sermon. Well, okay, not bad. I mean, it's done anyway. What can I do about it? Well, I think the exciting thing is this. I don't know about you. God, I'm finding it a bit warm in here today, aren't you? There's a lot of people, and we, it often feels a bit crowded and pushed in it. So the way that we can reach this city and the way that we can serve and submit is we can get to another room. This room, I think, is just getting a bit too small for us. I don't know if you know that we had a guy, a prophetic guy here at the end of January. He says, look, you're entering a season of growth. Make sure you're ready. It was last November. We also had a guy come and preach called Terry Virgo. Um, some of you I know have, have joined us since then. Many have, so you won't remember. Terry Virgo, some would say, was the father of New Frontier Churches. Uh, he, I guess, mm, golly, 30 years ago, I guess it started the first like New Frontier Church. Never meant to be like that. Just thought, I'll follow God. What happens? There's probably something like 800 churches now around the world. Anyway, I remember him being here, praying for folk. He said, oh, Pete, it's great. We've only been going two years, by the way, just under two years. He said, oh, Pete, really exciting. Great to see what's happening. He was saying, oh, Pete, I think this room's going to get too small for you. And I said, yeah, I believe that too. And so when we were walking out upstairs, this was a year ago, I showed him the main hall, Victoria Hall. And I just said, I'd love to be there one day. He said, Pete, when you're there, I will come back and preach. I thought, great, I know you on that one. So I booked it from January, and Terry's coming back on the 11th. <laughs> I emailed him and said, Look, you said you're a man of your word. Are you a man of God or not? <clears throat> Didn't quite put it like that in case he ever listens to it on the tape, which is unlikely. But, so reality is, we feel it's right for us to move on, to go to a different space. So from the 4th of January, we'll no longer be meeting in this room. From the 4th of January, we're going to go upstairs. And uh, that's going to be very inconvenient for some of you. Uh, many people consider change as loss. I'm very well aware of that. I mean, I, I don't know who to look at now. I think I'll just look at the wall as I say this bit. <laughs> See, some of us sit in the same seats every week. I'm one of them. Well, you no longer have that same seat because we're going to be in a different place. So everyone's going to turn up and think, I don't know where to sit. <laughs> I love it. People just turn up. There'll be total confusion on the first week. <laughs> oh, but that's always used to be my block. Oh, it's no longer there. So in, in all seriousness, where you sit will be quite different. But obviously, the other challenge will be, we just want to have much more space for people. Why do we want to move? We want to move because we want to do better facilities for the kids. And that's why we're going to get some better facilities out there. We want to move because we have more room to be community together, to talk to one another. We want to move because we want to have more room for worship. I know that some of you, just this morning, you wanted to break out and do a shuffle, and you felt stifled in your aisle. You won't need to feel like that up there. At the moment, you're flying economy class. When you get into the big room, you'll be flying business class. Trust me. <laughs> Leg room will be on the up. Yes. <laughs> Sandra's from Brazil, and she's already told me that she's going to be up there on that first week. 4th of January, Sandra. We're looking for it. There will be more space to respond to God in ministry. Okay, then. So what's the downside? Here's the downside. I want you all to come early because there'd be more space to rattle. So um, let's all get there for quarter past 10 at the latest. Why don't you surprise me? January New Year's resolution. 
uh, you could turn up at 10 and I think I would probably cry. In all seriousness, I think I'd love us to have everybody there early because we're going to be in a bigger room. So for some of you, literally, you think, well, on a Sunday morning, I'd have to set my alarm before nine. It's a sacrifice. Let's do it. I mean, in all seriousness. In all seriousness, we need double the number of servers because suddenly we're going to have to move all the stuff from here to there. So if you've never pitched in on a team, James, could you stand right now? James has pitched in on a team. James is responsible for setup, and we need more people. So you could think, James, put me down. I want to be there. I will come along and help. It will be great to have you sign up on that. Really would be good. Adam, I know, is signing up for welcome. We'd love to have some more people involved on welcome. Mark, I think, will do another person on the PA. Tots. Anna's outside, is she? Lots of volunteers. You could speak to Leanne. Because we think it'd be great. Come early, serve, review your giving. And the other thing I would ask you is try and be here every week for the month of January. It'd be great, wouldn't it? Just to think, hey, we're going to make an impact. Do you know, Ealing, there's 340,000 people live. That's just one part of London. We believe we're here to make an impact upon London. I think by us stepping up, I believe this is a faith thing in God's. And by us saying, oh, come on, we're going to do this. We're going to step up. There's a sense of us submitting so that we can make an impact upon here that could impact the city. I would love us as a church, not just have something for Ealing, but what about for Hammersmith or for Hounslow? Who knows where else God could have us plant churches across London. And so I feel that in January, there's almost like a, a symbolic step of faith. This is what it's going to be like. And you suddenly think, oh, golly, Pete, yeah, actually, I don't give, I'm going to give now. I don't serve, I'm going to serve now. I don't get it, I'm going to get it. Why? Because there's something of saying, actually, God, I believe that I'm here to reach the city. And this could be one small step of me saying, I'd love to make an impact. Let's pray. Jesus, we want to thank you. You gave everything for us. We thank you this whole chapter comes out of response of in view of all this. When we read chapter 9, we were blown away by the greatness of our God. And even now, we, we don't think, oh, it's not about our name. It's actually building a city for your glory. We believe that we're here to bless Ealing, to bless London for your glory. I do pray. I pray for us as a church. I pray exciting days ahead. I pray, God, there'd be faith steps amongst us. I pray, God, we get up there and think, wow, isn't it? We should have done this ages ago. I pray, God, for the day when we say, this hall's not big enough, we've got to think again. Father, we believe we're on a journey following you. And so, God, we, we ask your blessing, Lord, as we're going to go into 2015, we think about that. God, we ask your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name, amen.